Best Book Bits podcast brings you Gilbert Eichenbaum, author of the book, People Skills for Analytical Thinkers. Gilbert, thanks for being on the show. Haha, <laughs> Gil works for me. Thanks uh, for having me, Michael. And how do you pronounce your last name? Yeah, my last name is Eichenbaum. It's uh, e easier than it looks, I think, with the E-I-J. It's tough for everyone. For more audience that don't know you, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, where you come from and how you got here today. Yeah, sure. So I'm based in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And this is also where, I've where I was born in the Netherlands. And in my university time, I studied behavioral science because that's what I was so passionate about, psychology and understanding why people make decisions and how they reach those decisions. That's what fascinates me. That's what fascinates me inside uh, the business world, but also outside. But I also discovered that, you know, this, the psychology side is not, was not enough for me because when I started my career, I was thinking, okay, where should I head, head to? And I always loved mathematics and physics. I'm an analytical person. That's why I started my career in data analytics and it took a few turns and we can, uh, we can explore those as well. And in my personal life, I, I'm very passionate about sports. Sports energize me. They, they make me grounded. They make me um, happy and they help me to go outside as well, especially in the, during the lockdown last year. So you went to university and from my understanding, you're a former poker player. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I started that when I was a, a young student. When I was 18, I started exploring that. I've always loved games. And this game, I also also wanted to learn. So I, a friend taught me the the rules. I only knew poker from the from the movies, right? With smoking cigars and and a lot of money and a lot of macho uh, culture. But I I love the game and I love to improve myself and to to analyze my decisions because I played online mainly. So in the beginning, I played for fake money, right? There was no money on the table. But I love the game. I love to improve and. Then slowly I started to improve and analyze my decisions and I asked other people for feedback. Hey, how could I have improved uh, my game? And that's what I maintained doing over the, over the next two years. And it was sometimes it was tough, but I climbed my way up the, up the stakes. And at some point I th said to myself, okay, I want to do this. Um, I want to increase the number of hours playing poker every month because I was a student. So there was this moment where I thought, okay, I need to have a conversation with my parents. And until that moment, I had not discussed poker yet with my parents because I thought, okay, if I tell them how many hours I spent playing poker, they will be worried. They will think, okay, my son is a drug, a or not a drug addict, but a gambling addict. And that's not what we want. So at some point I decided, okay, now I want to tell them, show them, okay, I make consistent money throughout the last months. And I want to propose to quit my studies temporarily to focus more on poker. And, and I loved it because I could analyze my decisions based on data. I, I was playing online six to eight tables at the same time, usually. And every time I need to make a decision, I could click on one of the players. And there was, there were 100 data points that told me, is this player aggressive? Is this player passive? So I could decide based on data, what should my, be my next decision. And that's what I loved about it. But unfortunately, outside of the poker world, that didn't really help me because I was overthinking. I was treating human interaction. So on a birthday or in a, in a university, I treated everything as an 
opportunity for analysis. And of course, I didn't have those statistics. Sounds like your gamifying life. How did you take those skills from poker to data analytics? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, in the in the poker world, I already noticed. Okay, this is a bit too narrow for me. I think there's so much more to explore. A lot of people talk about poker and poker and poker in the, the poker world, and for me, it was too narrow. So I decided to switch back to to university, finish my behavioral science studies, and then decided, okay, I'm still an analytical person, so I also want to make a career in data and analytics. But throughout that career, I also always felt uh, an urge to also contribute on the human side. So helping people grow, helping people take steps in, in their personal development and also taking those steps myself, because I said, I, I struggled to communicate what was in my mind, my analytical thinking, how to communicate that to other people. I was thinking way too much. So I need to develop a bit in that sense. And then I also wanted to do, help others. So I started giving training for analytical type of people, how they can communicate their findings, their analysis in a compelling way. So not just com communicating the dry data, but also thinking about how can I make it interesting? How can I make it compelling? You talk a lot about communication. I know yourself, you're a man of many talents, someone that speaks five particular languages. Tell me what are those five languages that you speak? Yeah, not all fluent. I, I give you that. Um, Dutch, Dutch and English. I speak, my girlfriend is German. So I had to learn my, uh, my way up to the German uh, field. I, I was very bad at German in, in high school, but of course now I have a German uh, family-in-law, so I, I took some courses and Portuguese and Spanish I'm, I'm working on. When did you first have the idea for the book? Yeah, I had been writing blogs for some times and, and sometimes it reached people, but sometimes also not a small amount of people. But when I was traveling around the world, I had a sabbatical of six, six months right before COVID hit. And I was very lucky to be able to finish that, that travel. But during the travel, I, I wanted to to create something. And I thought, okay, I'm going to create a 20 page PDF document. Everything I, I have learned and, and from the moment I started my career up till that moment. So I started to write and I thought, okay, this might help some people. So it will be 20 pages. But once I started, so much came out of it. So many, so many pages and it started to grow to 50 pages to 100 pages. And I didn't really know where it would end. So I was also wondering, okay, how can I, are people going to read a 50 page PDF document? Probably not. Right. So I was thinking, how should I package it or how should I bring it to people? Because it's not enough for a book. Then I thought, okay, stop the thinking. You've done it enough. So just stop the thinking and keep on brain dumping. And slowly the structure of the book started to, started to arise. And, and I wanted to write a book, not just about communication, but because there are thousands of books about communication. I wanted to write a book about communication for analytical type of people, people like me, what I wish I would have learned. What's your definition of an analytical thinker? Yeah. In, in the start of my book, I have 20, 20 adjectives that describe an analytical thinker. So in the beginning of the book, you can do a little test, of course, not that black and white. And some people consider themselves an analytical thinker, even though they hit only 10 of those adjectives. But analytical type of people, they usually love analyzing, right? They love to look at the data and get findings from that. And because they are quite content oriented, sometimes they 
don't take enough time to to empathize with the other person to put themselves in the shoes of the other person and understand if i say it this way how will that come across and i think a lot there are a lot of analytical type of people who are um who focus in the communication more on the dry content but they are very human oriented but sometimes they don't have the skills to communicate it in that way in the first section of the book you talk about self-awareness do you mind expanding on that a little bit for us yeah i think all communication and personal development starts with self-awareness where am i at the moment what are my strengths what are my weaknesses and i said i wanted to write a book which is focused on analytical thinkers, not just a general communication book. That's why I use a lot of metaphors that are that relate to analytics and data and technology, because I use the metaphor of algorithms in my book for behavioral patterns. So slowly we make a lot of decisions every every day, thousands of decisions, some unconsciously, some consciously, and by understanding our patterns better, our algorithms, we discover about ourselves. So to, con to give a concrete example, imagine you're driving on the, on the road with a car and you're approaching a red traffic light and you see the red traffic light and you see the cars in front of you. And the question is, when do you brake? When do you decide to press the brake pedal? And of course, there are many analytical rational variables for example how far you know the distance and your speed and if you have any room to go take a different lane in, in case of an emergency something like that on the other hand there are emotional variables as well like what type of driver do you want to be or maybe there's a your kid on the next to you i know you have a small kid imagine that kid is in the back or sitting next to you you probably want to be a bit more mindful, right? How you break, how how fast you break. So there's a lot of variables, both rational and, and emotional variables. And I think a lot of analytical thinkers mostly look at the rational variables, but social interactions and your interactions at work with other people when you speak are full of emotional variables. So my point is neglecting those is a big mistake because you won't be, you won't understand the algorithms of your, your own algorithms and the algorithms of other people. What are your thoughts on, are people born a certain way or, or can we change? Uh, what's your research on this as personalities? Can we change our personalities? I think it's a great question. From when we're born, we, we have certain DNA, we have a certain personality, but also there are a lot of changes that happen. Especially in those few years, you form a lot of algorithms. So people that are neglected, people then did not get enough attention, they usually form some algorithms that are um, not desirable, so that harm them in the when they're older. And everyone has built some of those destructive algorithms, which, which don't give the results thereafter. So if they uh, didn't get enough attention, or maybe they were spoiled a bit too much, and now they think they are entitled to everything, and everyone has those algorithms. And of course, positive algorithms as well. So what I've seen is that you're born with a certain set of characteristics, but then in the first few years, that forms a lot of your personality, the way you communicate. But of course, throughout your childhood and when you're maturing, you can still make changes. Even though it's more difficult to make changes as a 70-year-old, because if you've been practicing and using those algorithms for so, so much time. It's a tough subject you're uh, tackling. Uh, in the second part of the book, you talk about optimizing 
Uh, what do you mean by optimizing? Talk to me about that. Yeah, optimize is about changing your algorithms. So now we now we are aware of our own algorithms, then we can also make changes. So I think many people can relate to an example where you say, okay, I get to work and after work, I, t I tell myself I have the desire to, to do a workout. But once I get home, then you sit on the couch, watch Netflix, right? So what happened there? So you made a choice, which is not optimal. Your algorithm was kind of stuck. So by understanding your algorithm, by seeing that happen in the moment, which is very difficult, and then optimizing, implementing a new type of behavior and monitoring, you can change your, your habits or your algorithms. Same as saying no, which is difficult for many people, including myself. So when someone asks me something, I'm inclined to say yes, you know, because I want to please the other person or I, I don't want to be bothering other people. But in fact, what I'm doing is I'm trying to please the other person in hope, in the hope they will like me, which is not a good thing, right? It's not nice. It's the purest form of manipulation. If you look at that way and by understanding by in the moment, having the awareness what's happening then stopping myself from saying no and trying out new types of behavior, saying no, or saying, I will come back to this later and then keeping and then monitoring by journaling or reflecting on what's happening throughout the week. And that's how you can slowly make the changes you're after. The first part's about self-awareness. The second part's about optimizing. And the third part, it's, uh, it's about interacting. Is that correct? So interact is all about understanding other people's algorithms, which is hard, right? It's hard to understand yourself, even harder to understand other people sometimes because we have a different mindset. And I think what's so important is to realize that everyone has a different way of thinking. And often we're stuck in our own minds thinking, how, how can he or she think like that or act like that? I really don't understand, but it's difficult to push away our own biases and our own, uh, our own mindset. But by asking questions about open and open-ended questions to people, you discover more about their, their needs, their beliefs. And that's also how you can start to understand more of other people, what's important to them instead of you and that also opens the way to influence in a positive way. Because if you don't know what's important to the other person, then influence is never going to happen. So if, if I try to influence you by selling Nike shoes, but you're not into sneakers or you love Adidas, then it doesn't really work. And of course this is simplistic, but if I know that you really care about sports or really care about freedom in your work, then this is something I can emphasize on not to push you in a certain direction that you don't want, but to create a, um, a win-win where you win and I win. You have a fantastic example in the book, uh, about Batman and Robin. Uh, what's the story about the Batman and Robin? Absolutely. What I, um, there's, so there's two types of algorithms. One is the positive algorithms and one is the negative algorithms. The positive ones are your strengths, the algorithms and behavioral patterns that give you the results you're after. Uh, for me to give an example, it's to bring structure in meetings or so wh when I was in a meeting, I found that the discussion was very unstructured and we were not going anywhere and discussions were going left and right, even though we had a big deadline. But then I decided, okay, 
I walked to the whiteboard and wrote down, okay, this is the core of the problem. And these are the different opinions. Now, how can we merge them into one decision? And that's what I focused on. And to me, it was easy, it was simple. It was automatic because it was one of my algorithms. But being aware of that positive algorithm, the Batman algorithm is made me realize, okay, this is a strength. I want to apply it more often. And it's called the Batman algorithm because it's strong. It gives you the results you're after. And Batman algorithm knows what is the right thing to do. Now, the other algorithm, the more negative one, I gave the example of saying no. That is the Joker algorithm. So even though you know what, what, what the right thing is to do, not say yes to everyone, even, even though you know it, it tricks you, it manipulates you in the right, in the wrong behavior. And that's why it calls why it's called the Joker algorithm. Tell me some of the tips and tricks from the book that uh, my audience can take away in, in little bits. Yeah, what I'm what I'm very passionate about is f asking for feedback, and I think it's it's difficult because often when we give feedback, ask for feedback, it feels like we open up and we are vulnerable, and um, people are gonna say mean stuff about us, but. What many readers say is that they find the following feedback method very helpful. So ask people three questions. First of all, what should I keep doing? Second, what should I stop doing? And third, what should I start doing? So by asking those questions, it's uh, framing those questions in that way, you get a lot of useful feedback that you can implement. And of course, if you ask many different people, you'll see some overlap probably, and you might discover some blind spots so weaknesses that you were not aware of or bright spots strengths that you're not aware of because they also may exist uh, and i think it's i think it's so important and there's also a thing called the dinner of truth i'm not sure if you're you're, you're aware uh, it's yeah yeah it's not it's not in my book but it's this concept of where you ask a friend or a colleague someone who knows you very well for to have a dinner and during that dinner you're gonna ask one question and that is what bothers most bothers you most about me and it's kind of dangerous right it feels very vulnerable but of course it gives you a lot of insight about your algorithms your behavioral patterns because that's why that's how people uh, will give feedback so i think that's a, that's very important and I was, I was, I was wondering you've, you've read so many, so many books and you've, you've been doing this for, for a long time, which is great. And I also see you're impacting so many people. What are, do you have any tips, uh, from my book or other books that you would like to share about communication or people skills? There are so many uh, great books about communication out there, um, about finding out your own communication style, being aware of how you communicate with yourself is super important. I myself, I'm a massive data nerd. So talk to me about MindSpeak and what you've done with the analytical projects that you're working on. Yeah, yeah MindSpeaking is the company I founded. And what I, what I do with MindSpeaking is giving training to data and analytics professionals. So mostly data scientists and analysts, and I help them communicate better because I believe that there are so many insights that these people find. They have done a great analysis. They have created the dashboard, but then people don't use it. 
people don't act on their insights. And I think it's a big shame because I think data and analytics professionals are smart people. They have great ideas, but sometimes they are not communicated in a way such that people take action. And that's where my trainings come in. So I have a training program, which consists of three sessions. First one is business understanding. Second is getting buy-in and persuading other people. And thirdly, data storytelling. So how do you communicate your insights in a way that is captivating, like, like Toy Story or uh, Lion King, and then communicate your message with a story framework. So that's what I do and mostly for, for companies, but I also have workshops where people can register as an individual. So if you like that, mindspeaking.com. For more audience out there, check out mindspeak.com. Another little story that you tell, which I love, is about the walnut story. So can you explain to people listening what is the walnut story? Yeah, no, I think um, it's something I, I thought about for a while. How should, I, how should I frame it? And I'm also always looking for ways to communicate a lesson in a creative message, because that's what I help other people with as well. So this is, this is my craft, to help people communicate analytical messages in a compelling way. And the story of the walnut, so what happens is that many people, they try to, um, yeah, they want to crack the walnut, right? They want to crack the, da the data nut. And many people say data is the new gold, right? It's, it's, it's fantastic, it's worth so much. But in fact, 80 to 90% of data projects fail. They fail to produce business outcomes. And I think it's a shame, as I mentioned before. And then the question is, how should we crack this? So how should we crack this nut? Because I think for me, data is not the new gold. Data is like a walnut. And the question is, how should we crack it? Not by, you know, having all these big machines that crack a nut because it's only a small nut. So a sledgehammer is not really necessary. I think we need to look at, okay, how can we make it easy? If an Excel document, Excel spreadsheet does the job, it's sufficient. Of course, we can create a, a, an amazing model, a fancy model, but often that's not necessary. So my take is to make it easy, use a simple nutcracker because that will do the job as well. And then before cracking all these nuts, you also need to understand who is going to use this nut and in what type of meal will this all not be used? And what are the interests or the, what are the taste? What is the taste of the people who are having that dinner? Because do they, do they like salty or not? So you need to understand your end users, the people who consume the walnuts or the people who consume the data. So you need to ask a lot of questions. Why do you need it? Who's, who else is going to eat it? And by asking all those questions, you understand more about your end users and you increase the likelihood that you make an impact with your data. It's a great story and I like how you use data and real life examples uh, with this story. Um, another great story that got my attention as a former poker player, um, you talk about what is the most frequent lie in the world people lie about. So what is that one frequent lie? Yeah, it's uh, it's cool that you come back to this. This article it has been a while since I, since I wrote it. And I wrote that during my trip around the world as well, by the way, I remember me sitting in New Zealand, very close from your, uh, from your home. If you like, look at that, that, yeah. And the most frequent lie in the world is I'm fine because 
what many people ask without thinking is, hey, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. And you know this really boring, automatic conversation. And I think often we're not doing very well. Sometimes we just have a bad day or sometimes something bad happened, something really bad. Maybe someone passed away or you don't feel well because you didn't get the promotion or you have some frustration or, or a sadness in you. And I think often we don't express this. And I think that's why it's a lie. And I think we need to look in the mirror and ask ourselves why we tell these lies, why we just don't tell, don't say, hey, yeah, actually, I'm not having a great day. Or if you want to be more open, more vulnerable, if you feel safe with the other person, then you can say, hey, I actually, I don't feel so well because my girlfriend broke up with me two weeks ago. That's what I did with a colleague. And even though I, did, I, I barely knew the colleague and we're walking from the train to the office and he asked me, hey, how are you doing? And I waited for two seconds and I said, well, actually not so good. And I smiled because I felt okay, I felt okay but also not, not good. And I felt happy I expressed that because we had a small conversation and it was so such a coincidence, but his, uh, he also broke his, um, his, his relationship a day before. So we were both in the same situation, which was messed up, but I felt so connected with him and I opened because I, I was being vulnerable. The other person also, uh, opened up. And I think it's a big lesson because often we push away those emotions, the bad feelings. We don't want to be a burden to anyone, but if we just share what's on our mind, then we let people know what's going on. And I think it's important to connect with other people. Yeah, it's so true. When you open up to others, other people open up to you. Um, you give someone else space to, to come out of their shell as well. Wonderful. Thank you for expanding on that. And I think it makes total sense. And I like your creative style of combining those metaphors into into compelling takeaway. Thank you. You touched on sports earlier. What What's your sports that uh, you play? What do you get up to with sports? Yeah, I've, for, for a long time, I played football, soccer. And that's what I love. Well, I love squash, uh, calisthenics. Calisthenics is easy because I live close to a park. So in five minutes I'm doing pull-ups. So it's, it's great for a quick, quick workout. So no excuses that it takes too long or, or the gym is too far or too expensive or whatever. No excuses. I like running as well. Um, I like hiking in the mountains, but we like those in the Netherlands. The highest mountain is uh, 300 meters. So not very uh, challenging. I spent time in the Netherlands uh, many years ago. Lovely place. Uh, my wife's family is from that part of the world. I love the bike culture that uh, you have in Amsterdam. Um, talk to me a little bit about what or who your top three authors or books are that have uh, touched the most. Absolutely. I really love the book by Robert Greene, The Laws of Human Nature. I think it's a fantastic book if you want to learn more about the deeper layers of, of, of human then um, you, should, uh, you should read it. There you go. Yeah, The War of Human Nature by Robert Greene. Fantastic book. I've done a summary of that and got that on my shelf uh, just behind me as well. There it is. Uh, what else? Yeah, what I also like is Stephen Covey. It's the first book I've read kicking off this, this reading habit of mine and personal development as well. It's the first time I realized how much impact we can have on our lives and how much change we can make. Because I, I've always felt, I'd always felt before that moment that I felt a bit trapped or stuck 
and okay, this is how I am and that's it. But then I realized how much impact our mindset has and how much we can change a situation and how much impact we have on our lives, how much we can steer it. And that's why this book is very special for me, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I've read, reread it for a few times. You know the story about uh, Stephen Covey and, and how he died? It was actually quite sad. He no. went bike riding, fell off, hit his head and, and, and died a couple of days later. Yeah, super, super sad. What's another author or book that, that you like? I really like uh, Cialdini and his work on influence, on psychology. It's a great book. Yeah, there, there's so many, so many great books. Yeah, but I will, I will name it Cialdini. Awesome, awesome. And what are you working on at the moment? Yeah, I'm, I'm creating an online course, which is a self-paced video course on with, with worksheets and exercises that allows people to take my material in a self-paced way. So I'm expecting to launch that in by December. And I'm excited because, of course, I can not split myself in, in two. And when I'm giving the workshops, I, I love it because I can interact with people. But of course, there's a limit to the amount of people I can talk to and, and train. So that's why I'm creating this online course to also give people the opportunity for a small, slightly lower price to um, take my work and implement the, the, the things I've learned. And yeah, so that's, that's what I'm working on. I'm, I'm launching the, the pre-sales in a few weeks. And final question. Um, if you were to host a dinner party with three people from the past, dead or alive, who would they be and what would you serve them? First one would be Nelson Mandela. I think it's uh, fantastic what he did for humanity. I would ask Robert Greene to have a great conversation about human behavior. And yeah, Stephen Covey as well. And it would serve them walnuts, <laughs> of course, <laughs> as a snack. Yeah. And I would host the dinner party in Rio de Janeiro because that's where I, I lived for six months. I haven't been back, but I'm planning to in the coming years, uh, looking over the, the mountains and the sea, because that's also what I love mountains and sea. And yeah, then I need to serve them a, a picanha and a, <laughs> a Brazilian steak. Cool. Robert Green, Nelson Mandela, Stephen Covey, uh, in Rio de Janeiro with some walnuts. That would be a great conversation. And, uh, where can people find you online? Yeah, best way to find me is on LinkedIn. I'm very active there, so I post almost every day about communication in, in data and analytics. The best way to buy my book is on Amazon. That's where most, most of the book sales happen. And yeah, I also have a free online course about having better conversations on my website, mindspeaking.com. You can check it out. And yeah, looking forward to hearing from you. You can always reach me via email. And what's the last message you uh, want to leave my audience with? Yeah, I spent a lot of time in becoming self-aware because that, I will, it will help you in every area of life. Gilbert, thanks for being on the Best Book Bits podcast. I uh, appreciate you coming on. Uh, to my audience, follow this man, read his book. Um, Gilbert, thanks for being on the show. Have a great day. Thanks, Michael. Thanks a lot for having me. Take care. Bye-bye now. Cheers. Speak soon.